Pray with me, if you will. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can meet with you here again today. Father, we take great comfort in your power and in your unending wisdom. You know all things past, present, and future. You are the everlasting, eternal God. Teach us now out of the store of your infinite wisdom. In Jesus' name, amen. If you have a Bible with you or a copy of God's Word near you, turn to the book of Daniel, chapter 2, the Old Testament prophetic book of Daniel. We've been walking through a study in this book, and we'll be here for a little while. It's a fascinating story of a young man and his friends who were literally kidnapped from their home by a foreign power. They were taken from Jerusalem and taken 700 miles away to Babylon. And today we're going to look at how Daniel has risen to a unique place and God gives him great blessing. We saw over the last couple of weeks that God had uh, used Daniel uh, mightily in this, that Daniel made a bold stand and said he would not defile himself. He declared, I refuse. I draw a line where God draws a line. And he made himself available to God in a very unique way. Now, tonight, uh, today what we're going to look at is, is a nighttime saga. We're going to look at a king having a dream. And the king's dream and the Lord's knowledge will kind of interplay in a unique way. And now I want you to see that, that verses 1 through 30 of Daniel chapter 2 is what we're going to address today. It's a big section of scripture, but it's a narrative. It's a story. We'll get into the, the actual meaning of the dream. We'll get into the prophetic section next week. But today I want to talk about the dream itself and how Daniel came to the place of interpreting it. I think there's some incredible, wonderful lessons for all of us to learn as we consider this, as we look at this focus. So God's knowledge is the focus today. God's infinite wisdom is our emphasis. You need to know this right off the bat. King Nebuchadnezzar is by far the most important pagan king in all of the Bible. He's given more press than any of the others. He's probably the very, uh, the, the very first one that we see in a real way interrupt Israel. Their power structure, he takes uh, captive those uh, of the royal descent as we've seen this very first deportation he took about 70 as hostages he came back again 10 years later and took about 10,000 more and then he came in 586 BC and completely destroyed Jerusalem wrecked the temple and took all of the remainder of Judah back with him as you think about this man he was bloodthirsty and power hungry he was a despot and yet God's going to use this Gentile ruler in his unfolding purposes. The Bible says something interesting in Isaiah 46.10. It's not in your notes anywhere, so you may want to scribble that down. Isaiah 46.10. The, the Bible says this. God's speaking, and he says, I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times. What's still to come? I say my purpose will stand, and I will do as I please. God said that. God said, I will do all that I please because I know the end from the beginning. In fact, you can write that down. God knows the end from the beginning. Think about this. God doesn't start at the beginning. God sees what's coming. And God already knows what's happening. There's nothing that ever occurs to God. I, I heard some years ago Vance Havner say that. He said, has it ever occurred to you that nothing ever occurs to God? 
think about that for a moment. Nothing ever occurs to God. He doesn't ever get around to doing something. He doesn't discover something new. He doesn't come to a place of trying to figure something out. No, he already knows the end from the beginning. And you need to see how that fits into our lives. He never finally decides something. He doesn't wrestle between opinions and then come up to a choice. He is always moving toward what he's already seen. That ought to bless you in this way. You need to begin to think that even before the fall of man, Even before Adam and Eve sinned, God had already prepared the cross. God had already prepared the lamb. God had already prepared the solution. He knew. He didn't come up with plan B and C and D and Z. No, God already knew the circumstances of the end. He knows the end from the beginning. It's important for you to see that. Um, Before you were born, God knew that you would be here today. God knew that there would be words that needed to be spoken into your life. And my prayer in this past week has been that he would take his word and my words that he gives, I pray, and he would speak to your heart and you would respond to him. But he knows those things. I want you to hear this. Not only does God know the end from the beginning, but God can mold all of history to accomplish his plan. Fill that in as well. That should be there in your notes. God knows the end from the beginning, and he can mold history to fit or accomplish his plan. That's an incredibly powerful thought. Now, this is probably one of the most unique discoveries that we're going to make together about prophecy. God is giving us history pre-written. God gives us history pre-written. You see, he's already prophesied many things that have come to pass, and there are still things that are yet to be that we're waiting on, but they are pre-written. Now, as we consider that, as we look toward that, what a powerful thing. So we come to Daniel 2, and we see this incredible story between this wicked king and God. Nebuchadnezzar, the, the whole world trembled before this man. He had a a nasty habit of throwing people into fires and throwing people to the lions. He had a nasty habit of being a brutal dictator and having his enemies' heads cut off. He would send his henchmen out and take care of business. Everyone in the world, all the nations trembled at the name of Nebuchadnezzar. In fact, the Bible says that in a couple places in Daniel. If you remember in Daniel 1, the captain of his Uh, guard was scared to to cross him because he was scared he'd lose his life and you need to see this that although the whole world trembled at Nebuchadnezzar he trembled before no man or nothing except his dreams you see we we're going to see in this story that he has a dream look at verse one with me one night during the second year of his reign Nebuchadnezzar had such disturbing dreams that he couldn't sleep He was terrified. In Daniel 4, 5, he actually says that. He said, I had a vision. I had a dream. I was lying in bed. And he said, the images and the visions that passed through my mind terrified me. It's sort of like that old saying, uneasy is the head that wears the crown. He is thinking about all of these different things. His busy mind won't let him sleep. He has royal insomnia, if you will. He has this terrifying dream, and he doesn't know what to do with it. Here's a man follow me, he's the ruler of the world. He has everything under his subjection all around him. All of his enemies have been beaten back and crushed under his dominion, and yet he's unable to sleep. 
He's filled with anxiety about the future, probably more than any other thing. He's consumed with thoughts about what's going to happen next. His focus is on what will come to pass. Let's not run past that even in this first verse. There are people in this room that are consumed with fear and anxiety about the future. You don't have to raise your hand or say amen or acknowledge it. I know that's true of many of you. Many people in our society are fearful. Many people in our society are worried. They're concerned. What's going to happen next? What's going to happen next week, next month, next year? I just don't know. We're in this state of flux and chaos, and I'm just consumed and concerned with the future. Well, that's him. So here's the scene. From the king's perspective, it's a sleepless night punctuated by a nightmare. But from God's perspective, this dream is going to become ultimately an avenue or a vehicle, if you will, from which he'll reveal all of his unfolding history of the times of the Gentiles. We're going to get into that. He has dealt with the Jewish nation all the way up to this point, And now God is going to inject into history a time for the Gentiles to meet him and experience him. And guess what? We live in those times. So God's going to give to this king a dream that actually spells out the rest of history from Daniel's day to today. And from today all the way into the future. It's an amazing book. And I hope that you'll hang with us as we study through it. I want to encourage you to plug into one of our Bible studies, especially the Right Now Media one, because it focuses in on this prophetic nature of the book of Daniel. So from God's perspective, we see him using this king and this dream in an interesting way. It's been said that chapter 2 of the book of Daniel is the most simple and clear prophetic statement we have in all of the word of God. I'll say this. Just as I said that Nebuchadnezzar is the the most significant of all the pagan kings, this is the most important or most amazing dream in all the Bible. So it's important for us to look at it. Let's dive into chapter 2. So we've already said in verse 1, during the third year of uh, the, the king's reign, excuse me, in the second year of his reign, he had such a disturbing dream that he couldn't sleep. Now, This starts in kind of a confusing way. This happens chronologically right after what we experienced in chapter 1. Do you remember what happened in chapter 1? They'd been kidnapped and they started brainwashing Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego. They put them in school. And for three years they were in school. And for three years they learned the literature and the language of Babylon. They learned the Chaldean language. They learned about the astrology. They learned all of the wisdom so that they could be used in the king's service. Nebuchadnezzar uh, emasculated them. They they made them eunuchs. And then they began this process of of creating in their world... uh, Robots, in essence. These young men could look like Jews on the outside, but they were to think like Babylonians. And it was three years. Well, guess what? Graduation happens. They've gone through their three years. Verse uh, verse 18 of chapter 1 says that. They finished the time of their inspection, their testing. And Daniel graduates valedictorian. He graduates top of his class. He's the best of the best, the wisest and the smartest. But something unique happens here. How long were they in school? Help me out. This is audience participation time. Three years. What year does it say in his reign that this happens? In the second year. Who put them in school? 
King Nebuchadnezzar, he was there in the beginning. Some of you are scratching your head. And people that are skeptical of the Bible will take something as small as that and they'll try to, aha, we got them. There's a mistake. In Babylonian rendering, they never counted their very first year as king. They called that their year of accession. And so here's what happened. If you remember me telling the story, his father died while he was going to, to crush Jerusalem. And he left Jerusalem and he went back and he ascended to the throne. Well, his first year was that time. They grabbed these hostages and brought them back. Daniel is writing this book, and he's writing as a Babylonian in the Babylonian court. In fact, something interesting, you can look this up. He starts writing in the Hebrew language, but he flips, and he begins to write in Chaldean. The book of uh, Daniel is written in both Aramaic and in Hebrew. It's kind of a fascinating thing. He's writing with a Babylonian slant, and so he just naturally picks up and says this is the second year of his reign. Well, it's actually the third year of him being king, and as simple as that. Now, we're all locked into the right chronology. Let's begin to move forward this. So as we consider this, uh, Nebuchadnezzar has these disturbing dreams, and he can't sleep. All throughout the Old Testament, God speaks through dreams and through visions. You probably are aware of them. If you've had any uh, access to the Bible, Joseph had a dream. He dreamed about his brothers bowing down. Abraham had dreams. Uh, Jacob had dreams. There are even opportunities for pagans to have dreams. I don't know if you remember the story, but there's a time when Abraham is scared to death of of what another king, Abimelech, is going to do to him. So he passes his wife off, Sarah, as his sister. And in the middle of the night, that king has a dream and says, don't mess with her, that's not his sister, it's his wife. God spoke even to the Gentiles, even to the pagans. And so this is not uncommon. And you might ask the question, Pastor, if this is the most important dream in all of Scripture, why would God give it to a pagan king? Well, I believe the answer is a sign of the time. You see, in this day, the Jews weren't much better off morally than the Babylonians. They had been idolatrous, and that was part of the reason that God brought judgment. They had walked away from God. They had thumbed their nose at God. They knew better, and yet they were not obedient. I think the second reason that you could probably surmise is this, that he is a, a Gentile king. And God's plan is now to unfold the times of the Gentiles. So who better to give it to than to this Gentile king? It's almost as if God is addressing his people in a sarcastic way. It's almost as if he's saying, yeah, I'll show you what kind of shape you're in. I'll give my unfolding plan to a pagan. Verse 2, look with me. He called in the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans. And he demanded that they tell him what the dream meant, or excuse me, what he had dreamed. And as they stood before the king, he said, I have had a dream that deeply troubles me, and I know, uh, I must know what it means. And then the astrologers answered the king in Aramaic, long live the king. And they answered that way because that's what you say to kings like him. And he said, tell us the dream, or they said, tell us the dream, and we will tell you what it means. 
So check this out. The king puts together his cabinet. He pulls together four different groups. These magicians, astrologers, sorcerers, and Chaldeans. We, we don't have time to go through all of them, but, but just quickly, these magicians were more like studied men. They, they were scribes that kept up with knowledge around them. And then the astrologers are the stargazers. They, they watched the signs and the seasons. And then the sorcerers were mediums of their day. They, they tried to consult with the dead. They tried to make incantations and they would work with the magicians to figure out things that they could do. And then ultimately the Chaldeans were listed. That's not a geographic reference, that's actually wise men. The Chaldeans were the wisest of the wise. If you go to the New Testament, and many of you have got uh, probably a nativity set at your house and you've got a set of Chaldeans that you didn't even know. They were the wise men. The wise men came from the east. They came from Babylon, and that's what it meant. They were Chaldeans. Well, as we think about this, let's look at the king's dream because it means far, far more than we probably read on the surface. It's marked by God's divine hand, and here's what I mean by this. Everybody look this way. God gave him the dream, and God shielded him from remembering the dream. For a very important purpose. It's amazing for us to see this. And it'll be important as we move along. The king calls these worldly men in. And he says you're my only hope. There's no way I can know this troubling thing. Unless you can tell me what it is. And they come in and they say long live the king. They're just trying to butter him up. Tell us the dream and we'll tell you what it means. He can't remember it. And I don't think that that is at all an accident. Here's the thought, though. He remembered that it was terrible, so much so that it kept him up. But in that Eastern culture, a forgotten dream was a bad omen. And so he was adamant, you need to tell me what this dream was and then tell me what this dream means. Well, they couldn't do that. But the idea is very, very focused with this. What a a great test. Look at verse 5. But the king said to the astrologers, I'm serious about this. If you don't tell me what my dream was and what it means, you'll be torn limb from limb and your houses will be turned to heaps of rubble, literally a dung heap. What a great test. If you can tell me what it means, then surely you can tell me what it is, what it was. Basically, he's saying if if you're a failure, you're a fraud. He was calling them out. He was going to see if they really did know what they said they knew. The, The thing is going on here so much deeper. God is hiding this from him. Let me, let me give you what one commentator said. This scenario furnished an opportunity to demonstrate the incompetence and inadequacy of mere human resources and learning and power to ascertain the mind and the will of God apart from his own revelation. That's a mouthful, I know. It's saying that unless God reveals something, we really don't know anything. Here is this group of pagan men. Here is God's revelation in a dream. And they come in and they can do nothing about it. Verse 6. But if you tell me what I dreamed and what the dream means, I'll give you many wonderful gifts and honors. Just tell me the dream and what it means. They said again, please, your majesty, tell us the dream and we'll tell you what it means. Verse 8. The king replied, I know what you're doing. You're stalling for time because you know I'm serious when I say, if you don't tell me the dream, you're doomed. 
So you've conspired to tell me lies, hoping I'll change my mind. But tell me the dream, and then I'll know that you can tell me what it means. It's pretty sad to me that that's the level of trust with him and his spiritual advisors. I I hope and, and like to think that you've got a little more trust in your pastor than that. I mean, they just immediately say, you're lying to us. Or he says, you're lying to me. He points at them and says, you are just stalling. You're just keeping me at bay because you know that I'll kill you if you don't do what I've demanded of you. It's pretty sad. I love what comes next. Verse 10. The astrologers replied to the king, no one on earth can tell the king his dream. And I love this. He says, and no king, however great and powerful, has ever asked such a thing of any magician, astrologer, or enchanter. The king's demand is impossible. No one except the gods can tell you your dream. They do not live among your people. They're admitting that there is no man on earth, there is no human wisdom that could possibly do what he's asked. In fact, it reminds me of the scripture in 1 Corinthians that says this, that the natural man cannot discern the things of the spirit. He cannot understand them for they are given by the spirit of God. If you here today have always kind of scratched your head, if you're far from God and you've said, I don't understand how people understand the Bible or they understand things of a spiritual nature, it's because in our natural state we can't. We're not given spiritual antenna until we believe, until we put faith in God and when we trust God he gives to us his spirit and then we begin a sense of supernatural discernment it's important for you to see this is a picture verse 10 gets to the heart of the Christian experience listen to this the Christian faith can be summed up this way they say there is not a man on earth that can understand the king's matter Daniel on earth understood the king's matter we're going to see that in a moment how here's the definition let me give you this a christian is a man on earth who can touch heaven and is able to bring heaven to bear on things here on earth a christian is a man on earth in touch with heaven so that he can bring heaven to bear on things here on earth and Daniel is such a man I love it these astrologers didn't even know what they were saying they're saying flesh and blood cannot do this there's not a person in the world that can do this you're right they even cried out they said unless you're a God or unless you know God and Daniel did let's keep going let's kind of continue to move I I think it's important for you to see this the king is uh, verse 12 The king is furious when he heard this, and he ordered that all the wise men of Babylon be executed. And because of the king's decree, men were sent to find and kill who? Daniel. And who else? His friends. Daniel's not even there. When he pulls his cabinet together, Daniel is an advisor. He's not even there. And the king says, kill them all. I want them all gone. They're not helping me, and I am terrified because of this dream. I don't know what it means. I I really can't even remember what it was. Somebody needs to tell me, and if they can't tell me, then away with all of them. It's a satanic decree. Satan wanted nothing more in the world than for these astrologers to have an answer. But you need to know that Satan is not all-knowing. He didn't know what was in the mind of the king. God did. That's an important thing for you. If you're worried about the future, you need to recognize that Satan would have loved for them to have an answer and he would have loved for Daniel to die. But he didn't either. 
in the accomplishment. The Bible says in 2 Peter 2 this, that the Lord knows how to deliver the godly. Some of you need to bank on that verse. Some of you need to say, you know what, in the middle of COVID, in the middle of chaos, in the middle of uncertainty, God knows how to deliver his own. And I'm going to be one of his. An old-time British preacher and theologian named Graham Scrocky wrote about this chapter. And I, I hate to, to just read to you, but I want to share this with you because it blessed me. He said, oh, the sin and the folly of pretension." The emphasis is not to be put on Nebuchadnezzar's wrath and cruelty, but on the circumstances that occasioned it. These sons of the colleges were trained and paid to interpret mysteries, and it seems reasonable that the same means whereby they could make interpretation could be used to ascertain the dream itself, but they could not. The fact is they were frauds. The four Hebrew children studied astrology to understand it, not to believe it. Verse 10 tells us in a single sentence that all the religions and arts and sciences and philosophies and attainments and powers of man without God, inspired prophets, and an all-glorious Christ are empty vanities when it comes to knowing the will of God. What am I saying? God unmasked their bankrupt religion and knowledge. God unmasked their bankrupt knowledge and religion. Write that down. It was bankrupt. It's empty. And I want to pull up on a soapbox for just a minute. These were the men that knew everything about everything. These were professors at the University of Babylon. They knew it all. And they had no clue. I see parents that send their kids off to secular universities all over the place and do not give them a grounding in the Word of God. And can I tell you this? At best, they're going to get a perverted or a a less than uh, complete picture of knowledge. They say, yeah, but I can't get that in a Christian university, in a Christian setting. I want to tell you this very simply, just pointedly. it It burdens me to think that we've got this mindset that Without God's word, we don't have a clue. And that mindset needs to be pervasive. The mindset, let me get back to this. I I just got stirred up thinking about it. Young people, students, seek the Lord. Some of you are going to say, I'm going to go to the best school that I can so that I'll get the best education. But you need to understand, you'll get a partial or a perverted education. And you may grasp lots of knowledge, but wisdom only comes from the Lord. And I'm not putting one university or one setting up over another in our town or otherwise. I'm simply saying, parents, you better give them a foundation. Knowledge is important, but they better have wisdom. And the critical nature is this. See, you can study evolution in school to understand it, not to believe it. And the the mindset of the world is continually pressing in on your kids to get them just like Nebuchadnezzar wanted Daniel. You can look like a Christian on the outside, but you better think like a secular humanist on the inside. Dr. David Jeremiah said this, brilliant scholars who represent the secular viewpoint of their day haven't graduated from kindergarten when it comes to dealing with the important matters of the kingdom of God. All right, so now we move from the palace to Daniel's house. I just want you to walk with me for a minute. They're going looking for him. Verse 13, let's see, or 14, let me catch up to myself. When Arioch, the commander of the king's guard, came to kill them, Daniel handled the situation with wisdom and with discretion. I love this picture. Arioch's got his sword. He's ready to just go kill all of them. And Daniel's going, oh, hey, Arioch, come on in. Let's have some coffee and sit down and talk. I mean, he's got this whimsical poise to him. It's pretty impressive. 
He asked Arioch, why has the king, verse 15, why has the king issued such a harsh decree? So Arioch told him all that happened. I almost envision Arioch setting his sword down on the couch and kicking back and, and receiving Daniel's hospitality and saying, well, let me tell you what the king did. He had this dream and he couldn't figure it out. And Daniel had favor with Ashpenaz and then Melzar, and now he's got favor with this guy, with Antioch. It's pretty amazing to me how God has blessed him. But he's poised. He's confident. He may have been holding his throat, but he was fairly collected on the outside. Look at verse 16. Daniel went at once to see the king, and he requested more time to tell the king what the dream meant. And then Daniel went home, and he told his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, what happened. He urged them to ask the God of heaven to show him, show them his mercy by telling them the secret so that they would not be executed along with the other wise men of Babylon. That night, the secret was revealed to Daniel. Look at how poised he is. Look at how he's focused in prayer. I love this picture of Daniel. He's calm, he's cool, he's collected. He talks to Arioch, and then he goes and he talks to the king. I think it's pretty amazing. All the king's men said, hey, your majesty, we need a little more time. And he said, you're lying and stalling. Daniel goes, hey, king, I need a little more time. He goes, sure, Daniel, whatever you need. How does that even work? I think it's kind of fascinating to, to see. Daniel must have been thinking, you know, Nebuchadnezzar on a good day and a good night's sleep throws people into fire. I wonder what it's going to be like after he's been up all night and he's in a foul mood I mean he's wanting to kill people and yet he went to him now I want you to see this Daniel's prayerful Daniel goes back to Shadrach Meshach and Abednego he goes back to them and says let's pray for God's mercy the astrologers looked to the stars for the answer and Daniel one up them Daniel went to the one who created those stars Daniel went to the one who spoke those stars into existence Daniel went to as it says the God of heaven he said the heavens that hold those stars is held in his hand and he can tell me anything I need to know let's ask for him to give us the answer and God does maybe there's a lesson for you in that maybe in your confusion maybe in your worry you just need to be with poised confidence praying and crying out to God trusting him that he would speak to you he didn't go straight to the king I love this he he gets the answer and he goes back to God if you were to look, and we don't have time for every bit of this, but verse 20 through 24 is one of the most beautiful songs of praise. Daniel just stops after God gives him the answer, and he praises God. He just thanks him for all that he's done. Praise the name of God forever and ever. He has wisdom and power. He controls the world's events. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise. On and on. He's just thanking him for what he's done. I, I love that picture. Daniel got on his knees and he prayed and God gave him the answer and then he got on his knees again and he praised him for giving it. That's not me. I think I would have immediately gotten up and said, ha, I got it. And I'd run to the king's presence and I can tell you the dream. I'd probably have eye problems. Ah. Daniel knew that he was not the solution. God was. And so he praised the Lord. You know, one of our biggest lies is this, and you've prayed this, I bet. Lord, we'll be careful to give you thanks and praise. In Jesus' name, amen.
I got to tell you, I've stopped praying that. I'm trying to be disciplined not to pray that. You know why? Because it makes a liar out of me. I'm not always that careful to praise the Lord. I'm not always that careful to thank the Lord. I, I don't know if you went about your day yesterday and you grilled out with family or, or what you did. Uh, if you shot fireworks and you were anywhere near my house and it was after 10 o'clock, I want to talk to you a little later. Uh, there were a lot of those folks that decided celebrating freedom is just burning money. And they, they did a lot of that last night. But I bet most of us went through our day yesterday and we didn't pause and really reflect on the reason that we have all the freedoms that we have. Daniel was careful to give God appropriate glory and credit. It's important for us to see what happens next. Look at verse 24. We're almost done. Daniel went to see Arioch, from whom the king had ordered to execute the wise men of Babylon. Daniel said, don't kill the wise men. Take me to the king. I'll tell him the meaning of the dream. Arioch quickly took Daniel to the king and said, I found one of the captives from Judah who will tell you the meaning of the dream. By the way, I wrote out in my Bible, no, you did not. You didn't find him. He found you. Look at verse 26. The king said to Daniel, is this true? Can you tell me what the dream was and what it means? And Daniel replied, and Daniel's almost rubbing it in. Watch this. This is good. There are no wise men, enchanters, magicians, or fortune tellers who can reveal the king's secret. You better underline verse 28. <laughs> but there is a God in heaven. Isn't that great? Daniel said, nobody on earth can do it. He said the exact same thing they said. He said, but there is a God in heaven who reveals secrets. And he has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in the future. And now I will tell you your dream and the visions you saw as you lay on your bed. What a powerful place of confidence when we're armed with the presence of God and we've praised the Lord. Now, now here's where I want to close. The more we look at this man, Daniel, the more we study him, there's a composite picture that's pretty incredible. I mean, you think about it. He is a satanic target. He wasn't even in the room, and Nebuchadnezzar wanted him dead. And you know why? Because Satan wanted him dead. You know why? Because he resolved to live for God. If you'll stand up, I promise you, you're going to become a target. There's spiritual warfare. Young people, y'all need to hear this. In, in middle school, high school, or in college, you need to hear. If you stand up for the Lord, you're going to be a target. But Daniel didn't fear that. He didn't shriek back. He stood with confidence and said, in the presence of God, there's a God in heaven, and he can do this thing. He has it. I want to give you just a few very simple character attributes of Daniel that you and I need to hang on to. Number one, he was composed before a crisis. He was composed before a crisis. How do you respond to crisis in your life? Do you melt down? Do you shrink back? Or, or do you just bow up and try to fight? Daniel did neither. Daniel ran to the Lord. He ran to the Lord in prayer. Are you composed before a crisis? Number two, he was courageous before the captain who was about to take his life. I realize that the coronavirus is an unseen enemy, but you don't need to fear it. You need to be wise. Daniel was wise. We need to walk in wisdom. We don't need to be stupid. I've said this over and over again. I'm not going to go lick buggies at Walmart, but I'm not going to walk around in fear. And you can't either. None of us should. We need to be wise. We need to distance. We need to do all the things we ought to do to protect ourselves. But regardless of the application, are you courageous in the face of opposition? When you face difficulty, are you composed and are you courageous? Number three, 
Daniel was confident before God in prayer. I believe that if there's any one discipline missing out of the church in America today, it is earnest intercessory prayer. I believe that if we would get back to the place where we fell on our knees before our sovereign God and begged him to move on behalf of our nation, if we begged him and prayed for our community leaders locally, statewide, nationally, that God would move. I believe that if God would uh, so hold his hand of judgment back that if he would give us time to pray and as we prayed we would see revival in our land number four Daniel was careful before his success to give praise to the Lord it's easy for us to want to take credit for things and it was said twice in this one text there's not a man on earth who can do this Daniel knew he couldn't take credit for it I believe the fact that Daniel didn't take credit for it is the reason that Daniel doesn't end in chapter 2. I think if if Daniel had popped into the presence of king and said, I got this, I can tell you everything, I think God probably would have shut his mind down and Arioch would have taken his head off. But Daniel moves on because he was confident before the Lord in prayer and he was careful before his successes to give God due honor. Finally, When God answers his prayer, he's contrite in spirit. When God answers his prayer, he's contrite in his spirit. As I think about Daniel's humility and his obedience, here's a question I want to pose to all of you this morning. Why would you and I not strive to be like that And even a step further, why would you and I not pray today? God, would you help me to be that kind of person? Composed before a crisis, courageous in the face of any opposition, confident before the Lord in prayer, very, very focused with a contrite spirit and careful to give God thanks for everything he does. And here's the deal. If you'll pray that prayer, watch out. Get ready for the action to start. You see, we're going to move into the next section, and we're going to begin to see that God revealed to Daniel things from his own heart. In the New Testament, there's a man named John who wrote the book of Revelation. He's called the beloved disciple. In the Old Testament, Daniel is called the the one who loved God or a friend of God. You see, when we become connected with God in relational ways, he begins to reveal his heart to us. And that exponentially added to the confidence of Daniel. When you walk with a, when God's your friend, when God's on your side, when God's leading you, there's nothing in the world that can touch you. And Daniel lived that way. And I'm praying that we would have a church filled with people that would pray that way. Let me pray for you this morning. Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for this season of time in our church's life as we're considering the truths of these prophecies. And God, as we look at Daniel's life and we see the the miraculous things that marked his life, it's all because he was connected to a miraculous, all-knowing, all-powerful God. Help us, Lord, to live for you. Help us to treasure you and to enjoy you. And help us, God, to experience, as Daniel did, the confident promises of answered prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me instruct you in this way. We're going to finish, obviously, over the course of these last days that we've been meeting. We're not doing a formal invitation. We're not asking people. Oftentimes, we would ask people, if you want to join our church, come forward. We've got 
counselors. We've got prayer partners that would connect with you. We call them encouragers. Uh, if you've got a spiritual decision of any sort that you need to make today, if you need prayer today, hang around for a few minutes. People are going to file out. Our encouragers will be here at the front, and then you can make your way up, and we can talk to you. We'd be glad to pray with you and encourage you in any way we can help you. Hey, thank you all so much for being here today. I, I hope and pray that you'll consider getting plugged into a small group. I, I hope and pray that you'll get on Right Now Media and you'll find the Daniel study and you'll, you'll begin watching it. You can watch it on demand anytime, day or night at your own convenience. But plug in and begin to tune in to what God's saying. Begin to listen because I believe God's got a message for all of us in these days for us to live differently. We're living in a different time, and I believe he wants us to live differently in light of the times. I love you. I thank you for your attendance and your attention. You're dismissed. God bless.